You are listening to episode 752 of the Juicebox podcast. Danielle is with me today. She is an adult living with type 1 diabetes, and we're going to cover a, a multitude of things, including her road from A1Cs in the 10s to the 6s, and everything that got her from where she started to where she is now. While you're listening, please remember that nothing you hear on the Juice Box podcast should be considered advice, medical or otherwise. Always consult a physician before making any changes to your healthcare plan or becoming bold with insulin. If you have the time, and by the time I mean fewer than 10 minutes, please go to t1dexchange.org forward slash juicebox and fill out the survey. All you have to be is a U.S. resident who has type 1 diabetes or is the caregiver of someone with type 1. Your simple answers to simple questions will help people living with type 1 diabetes, they'll support the podcast, and they may even help you. t1dexchange.org forward slash juicebox. This episode of the Juice Box Podcast is sponsored by the Omnipod 5. Learn more and get started today at omnipod.com forward slash juice box. The podcast is also sponsored by Arden's Blood Glucose Meter, the Contour Next One. And you can learn about that little gem at contournext.com forward slash juice box. Are you nervous? You okay? Um, I was nervous and I'm less nervous now. When were you nervous? Oh, I was driving in um, to, I'm at, I'm calling you from school. And so I had my commute to like, what am I going to say? What am I not going to say? Um, and so, you know, I had 45 minutes of anxiety and now we're here. <laughs> you, you shouldn't have told me that because, uh, well, anyway, go ahead and introduce yourself and then we'll get going. <laughs> we'll go from there. Um, cool. So I'm Danielle. I uh, have been diabetic. I was doing the math this morning for 20 years. And I am currently in law school. Oh, that's fancy. <clears throat> I'll tell you something. Yeah. Um, this weekend, we took Arden on a trip to visit a college. And I think I think this is going to be the one she wants to go to. So we're sitting with, you know, it's funny, the counselor, but I just looked at her and thought, salesperson. This is the salesperson for the college, right? And, Correct. Um, and, I, and I was like, I've never seen a counselor this pretty before in my entire life. I'm being marketed to, you know? Um, not that she didn't know what she was talking about. She just looked like a runway model, which struck me as strange. And um, not that runway models don't need jobs, Danielle. <laughs> like, they got to do something they, after, you know, the walking down the yeah, When that aisle. part's over, right? Yeah. So yeah. anyway, lovely person, not the point. Um, and she asks Arden, if you don't get in here, what else do you think you might do? And Arden had already been accepted to this school. So Arden's like, well, I've already been accepted here. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. I'm dying. Give me a second. Pay attention, lady. <laughs> yeah, look down at your paper. And um, what kind of sales job is this? You don't even know what you're trying to sell me. Uh, but anyway, she says to Arden, like, you know, what else might you do? And Arden goes, uh, I think if I didn't do this, and by the way, it's fashion design. Arden goes, I'd probably be pre-law. 
<laughs> I love it. I love it. The kids are all right. I just like, I was like, wow, I didn't have enough confidence to think I could do one thing when I was 17. <laughs> and she's like, I don't that's, know. I might do something way over here or way over there. doesn't matter. That's how I ended up in law school at 33 is uh, I didn't have the confidence to do it when I was art and sage. <laughs> no kidding. What did you, what did you go into uh, college for? Um, I did college for international relations and then mostly because I wanted to travel um, and I thought I could help solve problems elsewhere. Um, then I became a teacher and then I was a community organizer for about 10 years before law school. Oh, so you decided not to be president? Because I thought that was a pathway <laughs> to presidency. No? Uh, I like, They haven't been letting ladies be presidents lately. lately. Not yet. <laughs> my yet. husband wouldn't either truth this be told is, this has been firm no, <laughs> firm no. He, he's not looking to be on camera i'll tell you no. what though they've done a really good job of disappearing um what's his name isn't that crazy my goodness he's been the first vice president man like i don't even know what that is for oh, oh, I, oh. I was like what guy are we talking i don't about? know his but name yes. his name is doug his name is doug <laughs> So you're telling me that Kamala Harris's husband's name is Doug. Yes, that's what I'm telling you. And and what hold on, and what is it Kamala? It's Kamala, right? Yeah. Kamala. Kamala? I, I'm doing that wrong too. Well sorry. see. No, don't be sorry. <laughs> My point is, is that if this I'm Doug Emhoff. How crazy is that? You did you know that? You just knew Doug. No, I knew it was Doug Emhoff. I am a nerd. You were trying not to show me up. You were trying not to show me up. That was nice. See, I was trying to make the point that it wouldn't matter. Nobody would know who your husband was anyway if you were doing that. But <laughs> turns out you would know. So he's more likable than I am. They would all love him. Your sort of the chest, chest into Pete Buttigieg, you know, like that. <laughs> your husband's sort of chest. And <laughs> wait, Danielle, I'm confused. Your husband's more likable than you are. Yes. How is that possible? You seem delightful. He's a botanist, um, and so while I talk about politics and why the world is broken, he talks about trees. It's likable. <laughs> oh, so he's just giving people less to think about, so it's easier to be around him. He makes a good cocktail. He's a good egg. <laughs> he's a good egg. Has he ever looked at a tree longingly in a way that made you uncomfortable? Um, I can't say no. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Okay. All right. How old were you when you were diagnosed with type one? I was in ninth grade. I don't know, maybe 13. Okay. Um, um, 20 so years ago. The story there. Yeah. 20 years ago. So the story is I was in junior high. They do it differently in Arizona. And um, I had to go to the bathroom constantly. I, had, I was so thirsty. I was like running between classes and I went to my parents and I said, there is something wrong with me. I don't know what it is, but there is something wrong with me. And my parents were like, Ma, you're growing, you're changing. Like things are fine. Um, it, it, you know, bodies are weird. Um, and I was like, no, no, there's something amiss. And they were like, nah. Um, and this went on for probably three months or so before we took a road trip, the classic road trip story, um, from Phoenix to Denver to see some family. And it was like every gas station on the road, like maybe not even gas stations, just like wherever we could find, um, that we had to stop for me. And my parents were like, there's something wrong with you. And I was like, I've been telling you. 
Thank that you. Is, that is true. So your, yes. Your parents, not therapists or <laughs> kindergarten teachers, obviously, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> um, and so we went home, we did the whole vacation and then went home. Um, and at home, my uncle is diabetic. And so we tested um, and I was like 501 and my parents were like, that's problematic. Um, and so even then, like we didn't rush to the ER necessarily. It was like, I'll call the doctor and see what they say. Um, and the doctor tried to put us off for like a week and a half. I was, and then I asked my mom, did you tell her that the blood sugar was 501? And she was like, well, no. And I was like, call her back and tell her that information. And then she, they were like, you have to come in immediately. Um, and so something that I had been living with then as a like surly and overly confident 13 year old, um, became an emergency, um, despite the fact that I was like, no, I've had, whatever this is, it's been here for three months. Danielle, how long have you been the adult in the relationship between you and your parents? (laughs) Uh, maybe the whole time. (laughs) Um, no, I, my parents are great, but like their child rearing philosophy was sort of like, if we just treat you like an adult, then like you'll be an adult and it will be great. Um, and for the most part, like I cooperated with that philosophy. I had straight A's. I, my like weird rebellion was going to church. Like my parents were, (laughs) were like, this is, this is lovely. And so they were, I think they were totally unprepared for (laughs) something like diabetes to happen. (laughs) Margie, do you think she'll use heroin? No, I think she's going to go to church. That, that's great. So you, so your parents were not, your parents were not very religious. So the way you rebelled against them was going to church. Yes, my parents um, met each other on a blind date, went home together that night. Then three nights later, um, moved all my mom's stuff into my dad's apartment and have been together ever since. Um, and so they they're just a little wild. Wow, Just they, ho- a little while. they hooked up like lesbians. That's fascinating. Yeah. yeah, look at that. And you, have you ever been naked in front of your husband with the lights on? <laughs> Scott. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I can I, I can say yes to that question. Well, there you go. <laughs> I just, I just love that as a child, you were like, I need to push back against these people. I'm going to find religion. <laughs> did you find religion or did you just go to church for a little while? Uh, I would say I found religion and then I gave later, yeah, well, I gave back religion. I don't know that I gave back God, but I gave back religion. I was like, uh, this, this was meant to control women and I'm not that into it. (laughs) Oh, you didn't like what you found, but you liked the idea. I liked the idea of community. I liked the idea of faith. I liked the idea that there are things we can't explain and I didn't like the patriarchal structure and this idea that, you know, yeah. I don't know. There, there's a lot of things about church that uh, didn't sit right with me. By the way, I don't know if this is narcissism, but I think I could explain almost anything if you asked me. I think I'd, I'm not sure if I'd be right or not, but I'd come up with an explanation. You and every law student. <laughs> yeah. Oh, really? Is that how they work? Did, yeah. You've ever heard me talk about on the podcast that my eighth grade guidance counselor tried to get me to be an attorney? Uh, I have heard you talk about it. Yeah. I've considered it, and I think you would hate it because oh, I'm pretty sure arguing arguing is great, but like the way that the law works is that whatever was decided before must be the basis for what happens next. And you'd be like, "Well, why? But why that the 
I I have yeah, a more elegant sense. solution. Like why? Right, right. No, I <laughs> I even knew back then when he said it. I was like, uh, I think you're misunderstanding who I am fundamentally. But I mean, I think I could probably functionally do it if that's what you're asking me. But I don't think I would want to. Um, and uh, if you've anybody who's ever heard who's ever been in a business meeting with me because this podcast is actually a business and um you know like i have to meet with people and have like real like adult conversations about how things get said in ads for example or you know um you know talking about money about paying for ads stuff like that and so i get into these very oddly corporate settings where people who are dressed very nicely are sit sat up very properly in front of me and um, I just, I don't talk any differently in those meetings that I do on this podcast. <laughs> I think that's low key, the rebellion I'm here for, honestly. Okay. I, I'll come downstairs after a call and my wife will say, actually, I'll just tell you an actual story. Um, so I'm very friendly with the person who, um, who initially bought ads on this show for Omnipod, but that person does not work for Omnipod anymore. They're actually out of the diabetes space completely. And I contacted them and I was like, hey, listen, I'm about to have a meeting with Medtronic about InPen. And um, I think they're going to come on as advertisers for InPen. And, you know, I don't I forget what the question was. The question I had for really is not important. What's important is at the end of the conversation, she said, hey, in your first call, try to keep it to under three five. And I was like, oh. I was like, that's your, that's your, she goes, yeah. She's like, you, you, you know, you're going to curse. And I was like, right. She's like, just don't do it too much right away until they know you. And I was like, okay. So my, so the call finishes. My wife has no idea about this conversation I had with my friend. I get off the call and I come downstairs and my wife goes, how many times did you curse on the call? And I was like, like a half a dozen, but I kept the fucks to under three. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and my wife's like, I don't understand how you do business with people. I was like. I think it's the same as the podcast. I was like, it's, you know, we just talk like real people. And if it doesn't work out for me, I, I kind of don't care. You know, so I tell people all the time, I'm like, look, you know, if we're going to do business together, you should know th this is me. Like, this is how this is going to go. If that makes you uncomfortable, you ought to jump, you know? So, well, and in, so in my training as a community organizer, you learn that the way to get people to share things with you is to be vulnerable with them. And so I find that like sort of the unveneered swearing, et cetera, just being who I am in a space often creates like better connection and relationship with people. And so even if it isn't like the right norm for the space, I think that the vulnerability like transcends um, what you're supposed to do. Yeah. Uh, and also if I, if I wrote a memoir that had to be titled in less than six words, it would be my mom's favorite word is fuck. So you're going to get the fuck either way. <laughs> When um, I'm going to tell you a story and I'm going to keep the word out of it. But when we were young, like really young, 19, 20 years old, we were in a diner and I was philosophizing with my friends. And I said that I think there's a way to say anything to people and have them accept it. Like, you know, and by that, I mean, not brusque up against it. And I was trying to make a bigger point about language and eye contact and communication and stuff like that. And so uh, one of my stupid friends said, like, you couldn't say anything to anybody. And she's and uh, this guy says, I'm totally have to bleep this out. And also, I'm going to apologize to you ahead of time. But for context, he said, you can't use the word to the waitress without offending her. And I was like, 
I bet you I could. And I don't know. Challenge what, accepted. <laughs> I, like, I, I don't know what made me say that. Um, but I did say to him, I'm going to need three tries at this because we bet money, you know, and I was pretty sure it wasn't going to go right the first time, but it still didn't dissuade me. And I didn't say it directly to her. It's not like I identified her that way or addressed her. I tried to work it into, it did not go well the first time, but, um, and we had to leave a really big tip. So probably all the money I eventually won on the bet, I lost on the tip anyway, because I was like, we're really sorry. Um, but I did figure it out. I did figure out a way to talk to people in a way that um, I think nowadays they, people talk about is like you meet people where they are. Um, yep. And there's part of that that I believe is true. But there's a big piece of it that I believe is true that you just said is about like if I'm not hiding anything, then I'm not a threat to you. In, in any way, right? Like, I mean, you guys don't know me, like, you know, empirically, but you know me pretty well. Like, I'm not hiding any big things about me. Um, and then, to me, that's the pathway to talk to people about diabetes and have it be relatable and um, something you can actually absorb. But we should probably talk about your diabetes a little bit, no, too. I, I was just going to say that I think that had something like the podcast um, and specifically like your approach to the podcast existed when I was 13. I think in particular, my dad's entry point might've been totally different. Mm-hmm. Um, but my, so in my diagnosis story, fasting, fast forwarding to the ER, the doctor is in a panic. Um, I am not in a panic. I am finding this doctor's nonsense to be nonsense. And that will be the theme of how I approach doctors moving forward in my diabetic life. Um, But they, they rush us from one side of town to the other side of town um, to get us within with the very best endo. Um, And he, um, he says a lot of things, but he quickly shuffles us into a room with a diabetic educator who uh, was not speaking to my family and to me, um, in the, in a way that felt like they were being taken seriously. She was sort of trying to go really slow and explain it in a really elementary way. Um, and though my parents are wild, they are also very smart. Um, and so they started to feel sort of talked down to about diabetes. And I would say like within 10 minutes, my dad had left the room, found out how much we were being charged per hour for this experience, came back in and said, lady, you got 15 minutes, wrap it up. Um, And so then we left. And like, that was the extent of my diabetic education. Really? Um, Yeah. So it, I just think things would have gone differently, but there wasn't, there wasn't an internet. There wasn't podcasts. There certainly wasn't anyone talking about diabetes in a way that was like relatable or tangible or approachable. Yeah. I I will say that um, it's always been, and I I really, I want to make sure that I preface this by saying like, I'm not coming down on anybody um, for certain because a lot of good has been done for people over the years by a lot of people. But when I launched my blog, it was pretty early on in blogging and none of this high mindedness about how to help people was in my head. Like I was really just trying to draw attention to diabetes. And I thought, well, I'm not a doctor. Like I can't really help. Like, I wonder if I could help this way. Um, But I noticed pretty quickly, and maybe it was just a function of the fact that it was new or that technology didn't exist the way it does now. But, but people who talk to other people about diabetes mainly did what I call like um, 
like raw nerve blogging. You know what I mean? Like they're like, this is how I feel. And then other people would run up and be like, I feel like this too. And they'd be like, we feel like this together. And then that was the end of it. And I always just thought like, are you not going to help each other? You're just going to like look at each other in the face and go, Hey, this sucks. Right. It, like, like, how does that, like, what, why don't we try to make it not suck? Like, wouldn't that be interesting? <laughs> y- you know? Um, well, and the, the timing of my diabetes was such that I was diagnosed sort of in the nascent stage of the internet. And then as I was coming of age and trying to figure it out, um, there was that sort of diabetic community that you're describing. And I was 0% interested in that because I was like, no, I want a solution to my problems. I, I really don't want to dwell on having diabetes. I don't even like having diabetes. I just want a solution. And so I disconnected from any sort of like information source, I would say. Um, and so I've heard you sometimes talk about diabetics as like this diabetic, or this is the sort of person that should get it. And I would classify myself as someone who like should have gotten diabetes and understood it. Um, but I didn't, I spent like mm, probably the first 12 or 15 years of, um, of my diabetes career. No, it's not a career, um, but of my diagnosis being relatively uncontrolled. I saw the endo regularly. Um, I took my Lantus every day and my my endo was cranking my Lantus because he could tell that I wasn't doing anything else. Um, but as a teenager, it was like, I have these four data points in the day and I don't know what to do with them. I don't know how insulin works really. And so I have these four data points that just say I'm bad at this and there's nothing else in my life that I'm really extraordinarily bad at. So I'm just not going to do it. Mm -hmm. Um, And I did that for probably close to 15 years. Wow. Um, And I'd have like moments of like, I really want to be good at this. I'm going to like make this chart and like do a week of testing, but I couldn't get past the, and like, this probably won't make a lot of sense to people who, you know, enter diabetes with a Dexcom now, but um, it really was a different era in diabetes when you had, you know, these four test strips that you were supposed to somehow figure out what was happening. Um, And I just like, couldn't do it. Um, and like, I'm not the sort of person that, that meets obstacles and like walks away from them, but I did walk away from diabetes for a long time. At some point on your diabetes journey, a person gave you a blood glucose meter. Did they say to you, hey, this is a great blood glucose meter. It's one of the most accurate ones that they ever made. No, no, no one said that. Did they say, by the way, there are other blood glucose meters. You might want to look into it. I'm just going to give you this one because I have it here in the drawer. Nope, they didn't say that either. They just gave it to you and you thought, well, this must be my blood glucose meter because the doctor gave it to me. But there are many meters and they're not all made equally. You deserve an accurate, well-made, and easy-to-use blood glucose meter. You deserve the Contour Next One. The Contour Next One is my favorite blood glucose meter. I know that's a strange thing to say, but we've used a number of them over the years, and this one is my favorite. Why? Bright light for use at night. The screen, super easy to read. It's manageable, and by that I mean it's a good size. It's not too big, it's not too small. 
and I love the way it fits in my hand. It's sort of, um, because of the shape, which you'll see at contournext.com forward slash juice box, almost feels like you're holding a, like a pen in your hand. I don't know how to put it exactly. You'll see when you get to the website. But the Contour Next One blood glucose meter is incredibly accurate. But you might be worried, Scott, all this accuracy, uh, is it more expensive? Am I going to be paying a bunch more money? Uh, I don't think so. Actually, if you go to contournext.com forward slash juice box, you can actually buy it right now at a number of online venues. Walmart, Amazon, Walgreens, CVS, uh, a list goes on and on, Target, Rite Aid. And so when you get to my link, check it out. Because you might be able to save time and money buying Contour Next products from the convenience of your home. What am I saying? Well, I'm saying that it's possible that this meter and the test strips could be cheaper in cash than you're paying right now through your insurance company for an inferior product. How crazy is that? You owe it to yourself to be using the best equipment that you can. And there's no reason not to check out the Contour Next One blood glucose meter. Contour Next dot com forward slash juice box. The Omnipod 5 automated insulin delivery system is available now and waiting for you at Omnipod.com forward slash juice box. Omnipod 5 is the only tubeless automated insulin delivery system that integrates with the Dexcom G6 CGM. And it uses smart adjust technology to automatically adjust your insulin delivery every five minutes helping to protect against highs and lows without multiple daily injections. Omnipod 5 is also available through your pharmacy, which means you can get started without the four-year durable medical equipment contract that comes with most insulin pumps, even when you're currently in warranty with another system. To get started today, go to omnipod.com forward slash juice box. Now, for those of you who aren't in the market for an automated system, but still want an insulin pump, and love the idea of tubeless, you're looking for the Omnipod Dash. Head over to my link, omnipod.com forward slash juice box. While you're there, you'll be able to learn everything you need to know about the Omnipod 5 and the Omnipod Dash. And you can also find out if you're eligible for a free 30-day trial of the Omnipod Dash. My daughter Arden has been wearing the Omnipod since she was four years old, and she just turned 18. That is 14 years of wearing an Omnipod every day, and it has been nothing but a friend in this journey with insulin. Because the Omnipod is tubeless, you can wear it while you're showering, swimming, or participating in your favorite physical activity. It's a big deal to not have to disconnect from a tubed pump to do those things. Head over now to Omnipod.com forward slash juice box to find out if you're eligible for that free 30-day trial of the Dash, to learn more about the Dash, or to learn more about the Omnipod 5. Get started today. Omnipod 5 full safety and risk information, as well as a list of compatible phones and clinical trial claims data are available at my link. And at that same link, omnipod.com forward slash juice box, you can also find terms and conditions for that Omnipod Dash 30-day trial. I mean, how many times do you have to be faced with the idea that you have a problem in front of you that you don't functionally understand or have actual tools for? I mean, and how much of your life are you supposed to spend beating your head against that wall? Like, it does help um, me understand. Your explanation helps me understand 
when I hear adults say like, well, I'm just trying to live without this getting in my way, you know, they and, and it was relatively <clears throat> successful. Like I was going to college. I was, I had a job, like it was fine. It wasn't great. I was tired all the time and, you know, but it was fine. And so I definitely understand the adult. Like I'm just trying to live my life. Yeah. I have to clear my throat. I apologize. Hold on a second. <clears throat> I'm sorry. It's dry. No, it's dry in here. <laughs> and me complaining. Like I'm not in control of my home. <laughs> like it's dry in here. We got to put somebody on that. I'm the person, by the way, Danielle, if, if something happens, I'm going to fix it. Also, let's everybody pause for a second and appreciate what a mind we have here with Danielle. Uh, she used nascent in a sentence, didn't stop to think about it. I, I didn't notice that she was like, oh, I'm not sure if I'm using nascent correctly. Just whipped it right out like it was a part of her everyday life. Good for you. Fancy. <laughs> You're lucky I don't hang up the phone right now. Why? I thought it was great. I love it. I, I, there are times I there are times I swallow big words because I'm like, uh not that nascent's a big word. It's just not a common. Anyway, not the point. Um, <laughs> so you are managing along. I'm guessing your parents put it on you, right? Because they thought you were up for the challenge, I bet. Well, yeah, I think they thought I was up for the challenge. I certainly told them that I was up for the challenge. Um, I told the doctor the night I was diagnosed that I would not be staying in the hospital, that I had plans to go to the movies. And I ended up going to the movies that night. So I wasn't the sort of kid that was going to be easily dissuaded. And I don't think they thought they had any other tools that I didn't have. And I think they'd never experienced a disease that like, it wasn't just like, take the pill and you'll be fine. Like, I don't know that they fully understood the complexity of diabetes and the need to calibrate and the, the ways that my body was going to change over time. It, I think they sort of thought if you take your insulin, when the doctor tells you, then this is fine. that, yeah, this is all fine. Yeah. And so isn't it great how you're just like, I've got this. I'm not even staying here. I don't need any of this. And then for the next 15 years, you're like, eh, I'm not really going to pay attention to this. <laughs> uh, and I was racked with guilt. I was like, Oh, I'm very bad at this. Oh, that's um, interesting. I, I would go to the doctor like once a year to get my, I was still taking my long acting. I would go once a year. Um, I would find new endocrinologists whenever I moved um, so that I could get that prescription refilled. I wanted to be good at it. I wanted to be taking care of myself and I like just couldn't do it. Um, and I felt like it was like a personal moral failing that somehow I couldn't do this thing that it seemed like everyone else was doing there wasn't this outcry that diabetes was this like impossible disease such that I was aware of mm -hmm. so I don't know I, f I felt really bad about it for a long time which like was more feelings that kept me from doing anything about it because I was like oh I feel bad when I think about that so I won't think about it right uh, let me ask you a question like um your outcomes like a1c's were they wildly high usually tens ish Okay. Um, and nobody pushed back doctors, parents, nobody was like, Hey, we're doing the wrong thing here. Like, let's help her. So I think that my endo, my first endo was like, she's obviously not doing what she 
should be doing. I'm just going to keep increasing her Lantus so that at least I could get some insulin that's that and some coverage. Um, and she's not reporting crazy lows. So I can just keep amping that up, up and up and up. Um, and then I was steadfast. I will not get a pump. I do not want to pump. Um, the, 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 I had like a thing about, I didn't want a thing on my body. How was I going to wear a bikini? How was I going to wear a prom dress? Like it, and there was no adult to say, it doesn't really matter what you want. This is your health. Um, and so I, I just sort of got away with it. And then, you know, endos are sort of the luck of the draw. And so when I was in college, the endo that I saw, um, I think he must have mostly seen type two diabetics because his recommendations to me were that I needed to eat the same meal at every um every day at the same time and to start with oatmeal to start my day. <laughs> I was like, so none of that, none of that was right. Um, and so I grew distrustful of doctors and just was like, this is something that I'm just going to, yeah, it's just going to be impossible. So was, um, your, was it your thought that you're a bright person? Was it your thought that I'm going to die sooner than I should? Did you ever consider that? I, I knew that I would have complications and I was concerned about it, but I didn't know really the contours. I think if somebody had told me you're going to have injections in your eye, um, I might've tried to do something harder or that, or that some of those complications might involve, you know, your heart thing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, and yeah. even, even just saying like your kidneys or your feet or whatever, I don't think anybody like made it clear to me like what that life would look like it was just like be afraid that you these things might happen mm-hmm. um and it wasn't tangible enough to feel like it ever really could happen it sort of felt like i'd gotten diabetes that was a pretty hand right. and so it was unlikely that i would then get these other terrible things as far as i was concerned. oh you had that like a meteor already hit me thing yeah oh yeah okay and yeah. and I'm like sorry compounded with the idea that I was already trying, I had tried it. I had tried to do the right thing um, and it wasn't working. So what, you know, the definition of insanity, right? Mm. Like, did this have any like big psychological impacts on you aside of your health? Like were you, I mean, do you feel like you grew up in a way that was less healthy than, than it could have been in your mind? Um, I think that I learned hyper independence at a young age. And I think that it made me hesitant to connect with people and, and less like dependent on people um, that I, in my thirties certainly have been trying to like unlearn. Um, But I also think that those same things led to a lot of my success. And so it's hard to say like, this was on net negative. A not, excuse me, a net negative when like, you know, I'm in law school on a scholarship, like these things wouldn't happen. And unless I had learned really at a young age, how to take care of the things I needed to take care of. So interesting hearing you talk like that, because you basically just argued both sides of your issue and both sides seem kind of positive. You're like, you were like, I learned to be very independent, which is a bad thing because I'm guessing the rest of that sentence was I don't let people in and don't let people help me. And then 
the but the other side of it is I'm having success because you know ain't nothing gonna stop me. Like I I say it a different way when I tell people like right I always say like if the zombies come you come find me because I'll be okay when this is over. But the um but the rest of that sentence is because my father was pretty horrible and I I know how to live through horrible things you know and it's not um it. it and would you give one back for the other? Like, would I, like, you know, if my parents were like Warden June Cleaver, which I'm pretty sure is a reference literally no one's going to get um, at this point. But I was all like soft and, you know, couldn't stick up for myself. Like, would I make that trade or, you know, would I trade a, you know, would I, would, I'm okay with a couple of backhands at a 10 years old for saying the wrong thing. And, um, God knows, I don't remember what the wrong thing was anymore. But it, it, it but you know, like, it is is part of that um, valuable in one way, not valuable in another way? Look, it sounds like I'm arguing for child abuse, but I'm not. I'm, I'm trying to say. Uh, I mean, what, what's the saying? Um, uh, tough. I don't know something about pressure and diamonds, right? You know. That oh yeah. Thing, right. When you you know. Pressure that, makes diamonds yeah, or whatever. Or is that just a, a bull thing that somebody made up to try to feel better about the fact that their father was throwing them into a wall? Like, you, you know what I mean? Like, I, I don't know. Um, but anyway, it's, well, it's interesting. Well, and to be clear, my, my parents were both like lovely and supportive and showed up at every dive meet and gymnastics meet and tennis, whatever, mm-hmm. um, orchestra concert, you name it, they were there. Um, I just think that they weren't ever able to wrap their heads around diabetes in that particular way. Um, but I take your point about, you know, how, how those things then shape who you are, because the way that I handle the way that I handled diabetes for so long, I was able to do because I was resourceful. Like, I think I would have maybe found some people to like shake it out of me or, or intervene, but I was never, I've never been hospitalized for diabetes highs or lows. I've never, you know, had, um, any really scary episode. Well, there is a scary episode that we should probably talk about, but, um, never anything that made someone say that your life is off the rails. I was always able to say, Oh, there's a Snapple stand. I'll just grab a juice or, Oh, like my, when I was a teenager, we were hiking in the grand Canyon and I happened to not have anything, but the guy that would later be my husband was like, Oh, I have these weird like cyclist uh, jelly packs that we use for energy. Will those work? And so I was always able to like find a way because that hyper independence had given me the skills to be really good at figuring out any particular complicated situation. Um, I, I've but been, yeah, I've been pretty fascinated lately <clears throat> in, um, in watching people like contradict themselves. Like, like I, I just put up an episode today actually that was recorded probably six months ago with, um, these two kids who are in grad school together. And, um, I, I was kind of focused in that episode about how the guy kept saying, you know, um, I didn't let diabetes hold my hold me back. But of course, his health outcomes were not good. But right. in his mind, it didn't hold him back. And then the other part. So he had had diabetes for a very long time. The 
other person in the in the episode, Tori, she's more newly diagnosed, came up through the podcast. And I asked her, I was like, Tori, does diabetes hold you back? And she said, no. I was like, but Tori's A1C is lower and more stable. So right. it, it, it is a function a little bit of how you come up with it, the technology and the ideas that were available as you were coming up. <clears throat> I apologize. And, um, and at the same time, you know, everyone does the same thing. It's always like, oh, my parents were great. But they weren't. But they were like, like there's a weird like dichotomy in there, right? Like your parents weren't like absentee people and they weren't like disinterested. They just didn't have enough information to take it seriously. And you're even saying the understanding of long term complications were just a person standing in front of you going your feet, your kidneys, you're going to pee blood. Like, you know what I mean? Like just okay. like nothing, no, nothing tangible that you could that you could wrap your head around. And it probably seems so far out in the future, like it was never going to happen. And my example of that always is that people smoke all the time and everyone thinks they're the ones who, that it won't get me. I'm okay. <laughs> I go get right. it. It's going to give everyone else lung cancer, but not you like, but that's how people think. Um, right. I, I do think that's preservation. Uh, yeah. Well, and like I said, I really believed that, if I could have done something, I would have done it, but I had tried and I had tried and tried and felt like, well, the complication, if the complications are going to come, they're going to come because I tried my hand at this and it's just not, it's not for me. Right. I'm not going to worry about something I can't stop. Right. But you were also a child when you were having those thoughts. Well, I was, when I started yeah. and then but it went well through my twenties. Do you think there's no winning? Like, when I say to somebody, hey, would you have liked it if your parents were more involved? They'll say, yeah, if my parents were more involved, I would understand this, blah, 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 blah. Um, and this all would have went better. But then you talk to somebody whose parents were very involved and you're like, hey, how was it your parents being very involved? Was, I didn't like it. They were constantly on my back. Like, is it just the scenario where you just can't win? Like, you, you, no matter what you do, you're going to want the opposite? Uh, I mean, I think anything taken to its extreme is probably going to be problematic. I think where, because I, I rebelled hard against my, the, the, what my parents tried to do, I pushed back on and it was uncomfortable for everyone involved. And so I think for me, it just would have been a, a few key moments of like insisting that I was on a pump or, um, or just, I don't know. It's a, it's a good question because I definitely wasn't the sort of child that was going to be babysat in any kind of way. I had developed enough independence at that point that truly if every meal was like, what's your blood sugar, I might've murdered someone. Um, and so, but on the flip side, there, there did need to be someone in the room to be a more rational, objective person. It's interesting because in many ways, my, partner my husband is now does that for me so um I the next sort of chapter in this story is that when I tried to get into control um eventually I had a really scary episode and developed a severe fear of low blood sugar which I had never had for them you know 15 years 
Um, and he has become someone who can be, we call it like the astronaut brain. Um, cause astronauts are always looking for like, what's the next thing that's going to kill me, but it, it has to be calibrated because you can't panic while you're in space. And he has a very like grounded, logical, um, brain that allows him to look at a situation and say, okay, the number, the, the line is starting to get flat now. I can see logically the line is starting to get flat now where when I'm in a, when I'm in an anxious moment, he, I will just be like, well, but maybe I should drink some more apple juice. Maybe, maybe I should just a little bit more. Um, and so he can be a voice of reason where, um, you know, when you're living whatever that diabetic experience is, whether it is trying to fight a low or whether it is not wanting to have something attached to your body, like there is a little bit of illogic that happens because you're feeling the feelings um, instead of like being able to view the situation from a third party perspective. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think that there were moments where my parents could have done that, like more were the objective party in the room. um, Let us bring you back down from your, the feeling you're feeling right as the adult who's not dizzy i'd like to weigh in on i think we can stop drinking the apple juice now right uh, yeah yeah <laughs> you know earlier you just I, you know how you know how at the beginning of the episode you said you had to think about things that you weren't going to say um i've just thought of something i think i need to say and i don't think i should isn't that interesting um we're at a crossroads i think yeah i don't usually uh okay I think you should probably just say it. I think I figured out what Arden's church is. Oh. So Arden's not a combative child. And she's, I'm using the word compliant in the nicest way. She's a very compliant person. She's, you know, about her, her diabetes. She doesn't fight against having diabetes. Um, but she doesn't like swallowing pills. They get stuck in her throat. And... So she's supposed to be taking, you know, probiotics and a couple of other things. And she treats them like you're force feeding her poison and she knows it's poison and the poison has razor blades wrapped around it. And you're trying to kill her with a gun at the same time. And I'm thinking now, is that where Arden finds her control over the uncontrollable stuff in her life? Like, does she just pick this little thing that she thinks, oh, this isn't going to kill me? And I'll, I'll make a stand here so I feel like I'm in control of something. Well, I thank, mean, you know, I'm glad you came on, be. Danielle. <laughs> oh, could be. And where was Erica? She's done like 10 episodes about mental health stuff. I've never had this breakthrough with her. I hope she's listening. <laughs> Let me down, Erica. Um, no, this was oh, really... Eric. I actually decided to put it in the episode thinking maybe 35-year-old Arden will hear this one day and be like, oh... Yeah, that probably is what was happening. And maybe she'll call me and apologize. I mean, call me and tell me she misses me. Wouldn't that well, be weird? If- Danielle, hold on a second. You're jumping over this. What if in the future, my daughter calls me to say she misses me, and it's because of something I did in 2022 on a podcast? I don't think that you're the sort of person she'll ever have the space or time to miss, honestly. Oh, I'm insulted by that. <laughs> Said with love. <laughs> oh, no, I appreciate that. I can fill a room, Danielle. You have no idea. Uh, um, yeah, I think that, 
it's been interesting to hear you talk about your sort of uh, path with Arden because it's just so diametrically opposed to my like teenage years that it's hard. It's really hard for me to understand. I mean, Arden is certainly from a different generation than me, but like I, uh, the degree to which I fought diabetes just doesn't seem to even occur to her, at least from your description of it. Yeah, for the most part, like she's getting ready to go, I think in it like a day or so. Isn't it funny? I don't even really know. I think it's early Thursday morning. She's going to get on a plane with her class and fly to Disney. And they're going to stay there for, again, this is embarrassing. I don't know, three or four days. <laughs> a while. You know, it's going to be more than a day, you know. Um, and I just got off the phone before I spoke with you uh, with the traveling nurse that will be at Disney. And I explained how we were going to do everything. And I said, uh, you know, if you want to follow her Dexcom, you can. She said she would. And I laid the whole thing out for her. She actually has a little bit of background with diabetes and that she helped an autistic child with type one at one point. So the kid was very unaware of the diabetes and she had to know more about it. So I could hear in her descriptions that she saw some bigger picture stuff about overtreating and things like that. Um, so I was like, oh, this will be good. So we set up a group chat, um, between my wife, Arden, myself and the nurse. Um, we're going to invite her to Dexcom later. I'm not nervous about that at all. I think Arden's going to go to college 14 hours away by car. And I'm not even nervous about that. Like, I think this is all going to work out. Okay. But it's important to say that when I say, I think it's going to work out. Okay top line of what okay means to me is Arden's blood sugars are stable within a certain range and that we do everything we can to that. That is first and foremost. Like if she and I have to argue about probiotics, I'm even <laughs> cognizant of when we're arguing about it, that at least we're not arguing about insulin. Right. Right. right? Like that. that's most important. And I guess maybe I didn't realize it, but I think, I think, in that astronaut way you were describing. I think of it as no first. I say no to, I find all the things to say no to first. And then I find, yeah. and then I find the the right things. Uh, my wife and daughter do not enjoy my thought process around that at all. <laughs> um, but I eliminate uh, all the problems and then I just enjoy the rest of it. Um, yeah. But some people, I mean, you know, go the opposite, I guess. Yeah, I am for sure the opposite, but I can appreciate the the it pairs well in my marriage is what i would say mm -hmm. it pairs well i'm fascinated that you went into the grand canyon without any fast acting carbs whatsoever well i had some in my bag i just went on a five mile hike down the canyon without any you know it was fine <laughs> okay it worked out all right all right what i'm else? still here why else why else are you on the show because you um I remember you said things in your note, and I don't know if I've gotten to any of them. Who, who knows what I said? Um, so I think the other piece of my story that could be helpful is, um, so after, after a string of terrible endocrinologists, I found a good one. When I moved to LA, um, I found an endocrinologist that was, I was like, I'm going to find someone who's great. Cutting edge of research. Like, I'm just going to, I'm going to see if I can't find the best in the field to solve this because I'm tired of having this like 
burden that I'm carrying around every day that is unsolvable. Um, I found a doctor who was able to like recognize all the different pieces of what was happening to me. She got me on a Dexcom. Um, she started making changes to my long acting insulin um, and was sort of cognizant that I wasn't going to be able to immediately switch to being on the pump because I had fought it for so long and had this like psychological stuff happening. Mm-hmm. Um, but she was sort of also staying in her lane as the doctor. And so she was like, you should probably talk to someone, but also, you know, we're going to just make these small changes over time. So I switched to Triceba. I, um, I tried a Freza for a while. Um, and we were sort of messing with my regime, um, and getting, you know, slowly, but surely making step, taking steps out of the A1C. It took probably much longer than it should have, but, um, you know, we were going from 10 to eight and it was like, okay, this feels like progress at least. Um, and in the middle of that process, I went on a vacation. My husband and I went to Portland. Um, and I always, um, ran high, obviously I wasn't taking enough insulin, but when I, uh, would step away from work. The lack of stress often made me have lows that I wouldn't otherwise have. Um, I, I would just regularly on vacation have these um, lows that like in my normal day-to-day would not exist. Mm-hmm. Um, we go out, we spend the day walking around, probably walk 10 or 12 miles exploring the city, um, have a couple drinks, come back to the hotel room. It is, you know, probably 10 o'clock at night. Um, and I want to have this donut from Voodoo Donuts. I think it's so fancy. Um, and going to still live my best life, even with diabetes, but my blood sugar is still high despite having walked around all day. Um, and despite, you know, having tried to dose for dinner. And so I'm frustrated and I take 10 units of Humalog um, thinking I'm covering the donut and also rage bolusing for all the stuff that I've done throughout that day. Um, little did I know at the time I was still taking too much long acting insulin and I had recently switched to Traceba, which was slightly more, uh, impactful than the Lantus that I was on. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, the effect of alcohol plus this rage bolus meant that, I wake up in the middle of the night to the Dexcom alerting that you're falling fast. Um, And so I had fallen, I think I was falling, I want to say it was like 30 or 35 points um, each five minute time. And so I'm just looking at this chart that, and seeing this like roller coaster of like, I'm going to die. Like I'm not, I'm, I'm not low yet, but looking at this and if I just keep drawing the line, like this is a line to death. Um, I wake up my husband. I'm freaking out. I, I'm not in the middle of the Grand Canyon with, uh, no sugar. I have lots of sugar. So I'm drinking juice. Um, I had some starbursts, I think trying to bring it up, but I'm panicking because I can see this like precipitous drop and, um, start to get super anxious. And I'm, I'm now crying and, um, having sort of shortness of breath and, uh, Eventually, uh, I work myself into such a panic that I start throwing up. And then at that point, that only compounds the panic because I now I'm like, well, I'm not holding down the carbs that I needed to 
bring me back up. Right. And like, I'm just, I'm going to die here in this hotel room in Portland. What am I going to do? Um, was the Portland part the most upsetting? <laughs> uh, no, I don't really have it out for Portland. It was a lovely city. Um, but I, you know, hyper independent, hyper aware. I call an Uber, I call a taxi and I call the paramedics. Cause I was like, I don't know the city. I don't know who's going to get here faster. I don't know where the hospital is. Um, and so interestingly, the taxi got there first, then the paramedics, then the Uber. Um, <laughs> I love that. That by the way, is a freaking amazing foresight. You're like, I'm going to call three modes of transportation, whichever one gets here first wins. <laughs> And so um, when the paramedics showed up, they were like, well, but your blood sugar is not actually low because at that point, it, I think it was 70. <laughs> and I was like, but look at the graph. It's going to be low. Like, it's going to be low. And he, they were like, ma'am, we cannot treat you. Was your husband was sitting like, in that uncomfortable chair in the hotel room calling ex-girlfriends? Going to be like, hey, I'm sorry we broke up. I, um... <laughs> for him is that uh he has very chill vibes he's very chill about the whole thing <laughs> he was um, hugging a tree he was like oh no <laughs> well, well if she if she dies i'll still have the trees <laughs> so did that experience give you more anxiety or did, see because here's what I, i'll show you how your brain and my brain aren't similar and yet are really i'm really enjoying talking to you by the way and um but are similar and different what that would prove to me was Oh, I could stop a, a crazy fall. Like, I did it. But what it proved to you was your blood sugar could fall out of anywhere and you're going to die. <laughs> Is that right? Well, and it it seemed unpredictable. Like, I had never had something like that happen. And so it was like I couldn't trust the insulin. I In my lead up to the story, I gave you all the reasons why this happened. Yeah. But in the moment, it was just like, this is this uncontrollable, unexplainable, like, I I did all the right things. And, um, you know, diabetes is just impossible to understand. It's coming together. Um, yeah. Ooh, yeah. I have a question. So you were, you weren't like low while you were making those decisions yet. So you were no. like, uh, like you were panicking, but your, your brain was functioning. Right. Right. So I could feel the drop and I could, and I was like deep in anxiety. And so this very, <laughs> very, kind paramedic was like ma'am do you have anxiety issues and I just started sobbing <laughs> he, he like looked at my husband and my husband said nothing as the wise <laughs> man would do <laughs> no she's got it completely together I've never once even noticed her shake her fingers like she doesn't get even nervous that's fine I'm just gonna go over here and look at the wall <laughs> so, so do you have do you have anxiety generally speaking uh, maybe I don't know. How do you not know? <laughs> I mean, I would. the The answer is probably yes. Okay, but like everything else, it's in degrees and gradients, and it depends on, um, like it's one of those things that, like, saying that you have it's much like saying you have diabetes, saying that you have anxiety, sort of is like, oh, you have this uncontrolled, um, irrational anxiousness. And I would say that that irrational anxiousness has often prepared me well for <laughs> various situations. What you people call irrational, I call getting ready. <laughs> <laughs> 
Now, if you'll excuse me, I have to put mush into a five gallon <laughs> bucket in case the Russians come. <laughs> uh, my husband and I do have a vague outline of what would happen if if we got into an apocalyptic scenario and our friends know this and know where to go. <laughs> so interesting. I know I've said this on here before, but it fits here. Um uh, I know which one of my second floor windows I would jump out of if I absolutely had to jump out of the house. Yes. <laughs> like, you know, um, I have a plan for uh, what I would do if I met a bear. I know what I would do if I found a bottle and a genie was inside of it. I have a lot of plans for things that aren't going to happen, but I don't. I also want to point out that I didn't spend a ton of time on my genie plan. It was like five minutes when I was 12. It made a ton of sense and I've held on to it like throughout my life. Um I was just very concerned, Danielle, that if I found a genie in a bottle, I would end up with a fast car, a huge penis, and, like, something else that I couldn't, like, use five <laughs> minutes later. You know what I mean? Uh, so I was like, I was like, I wanted, to, <laughs> I wanted to make sure I was thoughtful about it in case it should happen. Anyway. <laughs> but I'm not, I'm not, I don't think about that constantly. Like, I don't have any anxiety around, oh, if the house catches on fire, I don't own a ladder that goes, a rope ladder. Although now that I said it, maybe I'm going to get a rope ladder. <laughs> That's what you, that's, but I think you're, you're articulating the key distinction is that lots of people are running around very anxious, but they've not went and got pills for it, or they've not identified it as a problem because most of the time it's helpful. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't consider myself anxious. Right. Yeah. But you're describing anxiety, but it's that your planning is so good that you don't have to get into scenarios where your planning has fallen short. Danielle. First wish, no matter what I wish for next, it comes true. Second wish, I don't die before I can make my third wish. <laughs> then I wish for unlimited wishes. And that's it. Right? Because I'm I need the unlimited wishes because I can't figure out like how to like get this down to three things. And I know for certain that I'm gonna drop dead before I get the wish out of my mouth. <laughs> So, and then I know my, like my fourth wish will be about health and my friends and my family. Like I'll put everybody in a good place and then I'll rebuild my life the way I would if everything was perfect and then probably ruin it and then live forever and, uh, hate myself for eternity. That's probably what would happen. Don't you think? I wonder how much of that was sarcasm and how much of it was true just now. Spoken <laughs> like a true anxious person, honestly. Yeah. I, um, um, I find myself to be prepared around ideas and it goes back to. I will tell you that when I was a child, I would imagine my parents' death <laughs> so that I would know what I would do if it would happen. You think that's anxiety? Can't say I haven't been there. Oh, no kidding. I'm incredible. Well, maybe you're not anxious, Danielle. The paramedic begs to differ. Nah, he's a paramedic. What's he know? He's probably high. Um, he was probably on mushrooms when he got to your house. I mean, it was Portland, <laughs> right? Correct. Yeah. yeah. Um. So we go back up to the hotel room. I'm still falling a little bit. It has slowed down. I eventually do have low blood sugar right about the time that we sit ourselves down at the, actually it wasn't when we sat down. It was when we, when my biscuits and gravy and two giant apple juices are delivered at the diner across the (laughs) street from the hotel. Um, So again, like we hyper preparedness is a thing that has served me well, but after that moment, I had 
tremendous anxiety that at any time in an uncontrollable, unexplainable way that I was going to have low blood sugar. Um, and I rode in the two hundreds and even there were, there was a time where I was uncomfortable below two fifty, Um, and I just couldn't, even though I had run around, you know, even though I had had this childhood full of doing all kinds of insane things, never knowing or caring what my blood sugar was, I could suddenly below 250 was like hard pass, cannot do it. Hmm. Um, and so how long ago I had, was this? I'm sorry. How long ago was this? Um, I would say five years ago. Okay. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Um, no, not at all. Uh, and so I then had like, essentially then went to move to Colorado, found a new endocrinologist. And I was like, I want to get this under control. Um, and I'm willing to do anything. Put me on a pump. I think I, I think I should be on a pump. Um, this doctor had heard that spiel before and was like, well, come back in three months. We'll see if we can put you on a pump. Um, and I was like, no, I am a serious person. Um, and he was like, to come back in three months. So I came back in three months and he put me on a pump and, um, we, j but in that, in that three months, I also went, started seeing a therapist who was a diabetic and we just like really did intense cognitive behavior interventions to slowly, but surely make small changes, uh, so that I could do the thing that you're talking about, which is like, see what the insulin does, trust that it does that every time, trust that I know what is going to happen. Um, and over time have been able, now my A1C is like in the sixes, my endos like, hi, bye. Love yeah. to, love to see you. Um, but it was probably like three solid years of work. At what point in that process do you find me? Pretty early. So after, mm, I want to say after I start having this anxiety, realize I need to solve it. I'm like, I just need to fix sort of my relationship with diabetes. And I start to do all the things that I was a hard pass on before. So I joined some Facebook groups. I find the podcasts. Um, I ordered some books online I was like we're just gonna like immerse ourselves like deny the days of denial are past we have to like know yeah. what the f going on and so I found found the podcast listened straight through to the defining diabetes um portion mm, is that what it's called the pro tips pro the tips defining here's what yeah, I got I got variables I got oh, so you went through the pro tip <laughs> episodes uh newly diagnosed or starting over episode 210 yeah yeah okay so I started there and then just like after I got through those just listened to whatever was next in the feed and at some point you said something that truly I think changed my relationship with diabetes which was just like if you wanted if you want more control like you should take less insulin. You won't have those swings. It's not, it's interesting because it's not the like take more, be bolder thing, but it's like these big doses of insulin that you're taking are then causing these crazy schemes. And so if you can just take a little bit that uh, apple juice would cover, um, you'd be fine. And I was like, oh, I can actually just do that. Yeah. Here's a unit. Here's a unit and a half. Like, that's fine. The bumping and nudging um, thing made sense to you. Yeah. Yeah. 
it's interesting, isn't it? How um, my thing, my words, whatever they are, get interpreted by different people different ways. Like I, I agree with you. I don't think I'm. I don't think of. Well, how am I going to say this? I'm not bold with insulin in the way that some people would think of those words. Right. I'm, I'm bold in a way that to me means I use insulin in a way that most people don't think about using it. I'm bold in that it's different. I don't mean right. that I'm like, you know, like, hey, just drink the vial. Let's see if it works through your stomach, too. Like, let's inject it in both arms at the same time. Like, I'm not like some crazy guy throwing insulin around all over the place. I mean, my daughter's got some, you know, larger boluses at times. Um based on on how her settings are. Actually, I was looking earlier while we were talking. Um, she's at school. So I don't know what she ate. I have no idea because I'm not with her. But she bolused 65 carbs. It was like 14 and a half units. Oh, man. Yeah. And um, I mean, she's doing all right. Her blood sugar is 145. Like she, it's level. Like I, it looks like it looks to me like she didn't pre bolus, and that she over bolus for something, knowing that she didn't pre bolus. And I've never actually even said that to her. Like that's just something she's picked up from what we've done, you know. Uh, but anyway, right. I'm sorry. Back to the the terminology that gets thrown around, that gets sometimes attached to me. Like I don't know. Like you. It, the whole podcast has gotten too big. Like I can't have a private conversation with everybody, but I think if someone came and interviewed me, you'd be surprised at some of my answers. Um, because I do think exactly what you just said, that it's, it's about timing and amount. And if you use the right amount at the right time and you never get high, then you don't have to correct. And if you don't have to correct a big high, you're not going to end up low later. You know, nothing's perfect, but likely, um, and that using more targeted insulin is, um, is the way I can see where somebody who has had diabetes for a long time might hear the word bold and think I'm just talking about like use a mallet, like Thor's hammer <laughs> full of insulin. But um, generally bold speaking, was the dose I took in Portland. Like that was bold. <laughs> it was a wrong decision. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't know if you were bold with insulin. You might've been like uh, poorly thought out and stupid with insulin. <laughs> like I don't rage. I don't think of, I don't think we rage bolus ever. Like, I, I've never just been, like, just use a massive amount of insulin that I don't know is being covered or not because I got to get out of this thing. Like, I'll crush it and catch it, but that's still a fairly well-thought-out process based on my experiences with insulin. So, anyway, it, it's weird to put your thoughts out into the world like this and have so many people hear them because when you hear them mirrored back at you, you're like, oh, I didn't mean that. But but it's almost like um, it's almost like a book review. Like, I realized one day, like, if I'm going to take a good book review, I got to take a bad book review. And right. if and there are people who have heard me say something and applied it to their lives and had a lot of success with it. And sometimes when I hear them talk about it, I think that's not what I meant. But, you know, like, if it worked for you, great. Like, whatever you took from it, I think maybe I'm learning over time that even more, I'm going to say something I don't know if I believe completely, but maybe more important than the ideas is the conversation i don't know maybe no i mean i think that that connects to sort of 
one of the other things that I would just say that I wish I had known sooner in my diabetes journey is that like the community actually does matter. I think I spent like 20 years not believing that the community matters. I was like, it didn't matter. I have this struggle with diabetes. I don't need to talk to anyone about it. I don't need to like have people feel bad for me. I don't need to explain why it's awful. Like we all know it's awful at the end. Um, and I like eschewed the idea of diabetes camp. I was like, what are we going to like build pancreases and sort of shoot them out into the lake and burn them in effigy, like a Viking funeral. Like I just didn't understand or appreciate like what it would mean to have a community um, and what the value could be. And I do think it is like, to your point, the exchange of information um, and the like perspective that you can get from seeing someone else do it differently. Yeah. So <clears throat> I take a lot of pride, even though you weren't speaking to me just then, I take a lot of pride in that you feel that way because, and again, this is not a judgment against those people, but in the beginning when there were just a few diabetes blogs, they were all long-term type ones who were living pretty scared lives. They were scared of lows too. And, you know, would make the same joke about diet soda over and over again. Like I can see why you wouldn't want to be a part of that community, but also that was their truth and they were sharing it. But the problem I always found is that then the community got built around voices that didn't know what they were doing all the time. Like, it's not that their stories weren't important because they're incredibly important and sameness and community in that way is is valuable in a way that's hard to put into words like i'm not i am not coming down on what happened i just think that that's where it started like if there was no diabetes community before the day i decided to make this podcast it's possible that that community would have built out around the idea of you know maybe you have more you know control over all this than you think you do and and so it got built out that way. I can see why it drew a lot of people in, and I can see why it repelled a lot of people away. Um, also, you just threw in skewed like <laughs> into the conversation, like none of us were going to hear it. You and your fancy education. Uh, uh, I went to state school. It's not that fancy. <laughs> I'm just teasing you. I like your usage. Um, I heard it. I'm just. I'm giving you props. I, li I liked your usage. Anyway, um, my pride comes from thinking that maybe there's another generation of people who's, you know, who will be a little bolder in their ability to find answers for themselves and to apply things that they've learned. You know, I just watched in the Facebook group yesterday, this person, and I understood where they were coming from. So they get into a conversation, they're newer to the Facebook group. They clearly don't listen to the podcast, which is a weird dichotomy for me, because in my mind, I don't even know how you know about the Facebook group if you don't listen to the podcast. But it's gotten to that point where my Facebook group has become so um, popular and big and I think valuable for people that it attracts people in anyway that never heard the podcast. Now you have a newer diagnosed child. The parent uh, is real fear-based still, which is understandable. Some person asks a question and the responses start coming back that are very um, rooted in the podcast. 
And there are people saying like, hey, try this episode, try listening to this, blah, blah, blah. And it just overwhelmed one person who came in and was like, you can't listen to a podcast over your doctor. And I was like, whatever, like she can say whatever she wants. I don't care. Like, like, you know what I mean? So they're having this conversation back and forth, but I could see how afraid she was. She was afraid that someone was going to say something that another person was going to misunderstand and it was going to be, you know, detrimental to their health. And she felt so passionate about it that she kept arguing. And people were like, look, very kind to her, I thought. I thought the conversation was very clear. They're like, look, you know, I think if you maybe you should try this. And she just kept pushing back. I could tell she felt like she was saving someone's life. And so I didn't, I thought nothing of it. I let the conversation go on and on and on. It actually wasn't until, and I very, very infrequently do this, but I had to like block her from the group because she started DMing people like Mm. really fearful things. And I thought, well, this is such a strange thing because one day this lady won't feel this scared and she'll look back on this moment and be embarrassed and she shouldn't be, but, but she will be. And, but that's if she's lucky and she gets the information and she figures out how to collate it and use it in her life. Or she might just blow off into the breeze like you did as a kid and live there forever. And I felt a real responsibility to not let her just fade away. And it wasn't until she you know, went behind people's, but like she was doing it privately that I thought, okay, I can't give her access to these members. They need protection from something like this. Um, But I would have been happy if she would have kept the conversation in the space because I think it could take her months to grow away from that fear. And I wanted her to be able to do it, but she got a little too internet crazy. So it, it had to stop, but. Well, it's interesting too watching sort of the juice box community because it, so many of the people that are in it are parents of, type ones and not type ones themselves. I mean, there are people like me too, but um, there it creates this interesting dichotomy because like the idea that you would just trust your doctor a hundred percent when, when you're a diabetic, you know, you have to then go home and make these decisions and that it all is kind of a gamble and that the doctor only knows like this much of your entire diabetes uh, sort of experience and life uh, it, it may, I don't know, maybe I'm just like a naturally skeptical person, but it, the idea that you would just be like, well, only the doctor can know, um, is something that is hard to understand. But I think that if you're a parent of a child and like watching that unfold, I can imagine how scary that would be. And so you have to trust the only thing that is saying I'm correct. I'm right. Yeah. Right. Guy's got a coat and a hat and there's a thing hanging on his (laughs) wall. Like he must know. Um, actually, you know, it's funny. Um, I know the makeup of the Facebook group. There are way more adults in there than you think. They're just very quiet. They don't talk as much. Yeah. They don't talk as much as the parents. Um, but they're there. I don't know that it's 50, 50, but it's closer to 65, 55 than you than you might think it is. It's very interesting. And when the adults do pop up, their stuff's always super valuable because they've got context that that the parents don't have. Um, I'm proud that there's an interplay in there between adults and parents because it's it's hard to. I don't know. I don't understand people's minds and why they 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 run off into teams and they want to be on teams and it's all important like i'm an adult with type one and you're a parent with type one or you have type one and you have type two or you like the kansas city chiefs and i like the like i don't understand why people care about 
that, if I'm being perfectly honest. Um, but it happens. It's very real. Um, and that yep. any time that you can bring a couple of teams together and let them see each other's, you know, inner workings, I find it to be really valuable. Um, anyway, I saw I saw a post this morning about silver linings and, you know, she, clearly a new, newly diagnosed kid. And she's just like, there will never be a silver lining. Like, what is this person even asking me about? And I was like, oh, I, I could probably articulate some silver linings having yeah. lived with this. And and like I'm someone who has complications I'm someone who has done the whole roller coaster and I could still probably articulate a few. So I do think that that like interplay from being able to hear from someone who's further along the line to when you're just newly diagnosed is one of the more beautiful parts of the podcast and the Facebook crew. I think one of the cool parts about my job is that I saw that post as well. And I know where it's going to go because I've seen it a hundred times before and it's going to go in a really good place. And that person's going to get a lot out of it. I even know how they're going to feel when it's over because I've seen it play out so many times. There are times when I see stuff like that pop up and I go, Oh, that's good. That I can't wait for people to have this conversation. That's a great conversation for them to have just the same way as sometimes somebody says something. I'm like, Oh, there's no good end to this. Like this is, (laughs) this is not going to end well. Like it can't like it just, and not that it couldn't, by the way, everybody could make the right decision, but it, I haven't seen it yet. <laughs> so I, I, once I you have so many people in a in a room, it, it's just headed in that direction. Yeah. It almost feels like what it might be like to be like a judge and have presided over ten thousand cases. Like when you're seventy and somebody, you know, and the two the plaintiff and the and the defendant stand up and they start talking, you're like, I already know how this is gonna go. <laughs> you know, like um it's not that people don't have real agency. It's just that there are a finite number of decisions you can make. And eventually, you know, I know we, we all like to feel special, but my life's not much different than than yours and vice versa. And you know, sometimes you just know how it's going to work out. So I love um, watching people find answers and um, I like watching them get to them in ways that I at least believe are uh, valuable um, in a bigger way than just what I see in front of me. Like I know how growth goes. Like, like there are people who, who email me and they, I mean, they, they feel like they're five seconds from throwing themselves off a building, you know? And I just tell them like, I already know how this is going to go. Like you don't know, but trust me, here's what you need to learn. Once you learn that, apply it. After you apply it, you'll feel better. After you feel better, you'll see a bigger picture. Eventually, you know, six months from now, you won't feel this way. And you'll send me an email and tell me you don't feel this way. And then six months from now, the email comes back and they're okay. So, I mean, if everybody can believe me, I mean, it's going to be all right. Just got to get your basil right, pre-bolus, and learn about the different impacts of your foods. And, you know, you'll learn how to use insulin and it'll be okay. Um, Do you have to go? I saw you look aside. Uh, I've got 10 minutes. Do you have anything? All right, well, then here, here's the question. Is there anything that we haven't talked about? that you want to talk about? That's a good question. You want to throw out a couple mm. big words or anything like that? What other <laughs> words do you know? I know some words. Yeah. Are they going to be about um, me? <laughs> Asshole. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, I, I think that what I will say, I, I think I would just double down on the community piece. So, 
Um, my whole life, I didn't know anyone that was diabetic. It was just me. Um, and I suppose my uncle, but he, he had a hard life and I was not someone I thought of as a role model. And so um, I, and I always thought that was fine. And I think that, so coming to the law school, there happens to be like six or seven of us running around with Dexcoms here. Um, and there's a, there's a little bit of a Dexcom exchange and a low blood sugar exchange or a low blood sugar treatment exchange. And um, there's a crew of girls that like follows each other. And that is the first time really that I've had that um, in-person connection. And I got a taste of it in the podcast and then was willing to like do that in real life because I had seen like how much the podcast had benefited, how I thought about diabetes. And I just think that if there was one thing I would leave like parents with of type ones with, but also type ones too, like you should probably go find a community, even if the whole idea is abhorrent to you, or if it's like pretty difficult I think that there is real value in not being alone in um, this disease. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I was trying not to swear, but are you kidding we me? We <laughs> curse so much. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. I've made nine notes of where I have to take out cursing. And now, uh, now you're figuring it out in an hour and 20 minutes into it. Um, no, no, that was the tame version, honestly. No, uh, was it? Uh, yeah, that was the censored version. I think that community can have a bad connotation for people. I think that they can see it as kumbaya and we're all going to just like say positive things to each other. And, you know, and it's going to be, and, and a lot of people don't want that. I have to be honest, <laughs> I wouldn't want that either. Uh, but that's you know, what I, I mean, that's what I thought it was. I honestly yeah. thought that like when people talked about being in community, it was like, we're going to hold hands and talk about the Dexcom sensor. And I was like, no, thank you to all of that. Right. Yeah. I, I'm, 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 I'm good. Uh, but it, it, what it really is, is it's an invisible support system. And that's important. Like the not feeling alone is really important. Not being alone is more important. Um, and I think that's where the blend of, I mean, if I can, like, I guess I'm going to speak for myself here, which is gonna, I'm gonna sound like a douchebag in a second, but I think that what I, um, for in a second, do you think most people are like, yeah, yeah, and for the last hour and a half, uh, <laughs> and most podcasts, and, and most of the episodes, <laughs> but uh, to you people, I say Fuck off, uh, but, um, <laughs> I think what I've done is that I've, I found a way to take the community and blend it with actual like ideas that are helpful so that the community can just be this thing. Like it's supposed to be like this, this energy in the background that exists and it will buoy you, but isn't something that you physically have to be touching constantly to be a party to. Um, there's, I, someone should do a, a dissertation on what this podcast is like one day. Like, I hope I live long enough for somebody to break it down as their grad student project, because I think that between the information that's in my head about insulin, how I think about the world, my ability to communicate with people, uh, my ability to take something that, I mean, let's be honest, should be really boring. And I, I think I do a pretty good job of it not being boring. 
And then to bring all these people together from all over the world, by the way, like I don't have as many international guests on as I could, um, but people are listening everywhere. And just how it's empowered people from somebody who's had diabetes for 20 years and, you know, felt like they were at a loss to people who have, you know, just found that they out that they have diabetes today and and delivered a message that they can all on some level absorb and find useful. I mean, honestly, I don't know how I did it. Like, you know what I mean? Like it just worked. I just, I don't even feel like, I don't even feel deserving of saying that I did it. I just had this idea and I kept following it to where it made sense next and building on it where it makes sense. And there are plenty of ideas that people have had. I'm like, no, that's not right. Like, and I don't know if I'm wrong, but I've ignored things that like right now people are trying to get me to start a babysitting thing up. And I'm like, yeah, no, I can't. Like I have a finite amount of time and you don't understand the legality around that. Like, I can't be involved in you finding a babysitter who shows up in your house and then takes the Ginsu no. knives and kills your dog. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that, I can't be involved in that. Is it a bad idea? It's not. But it won't reach as many people as you think. It's um, it's a finite need in a certain age. Um, You won't reach as many people as you need to make it popular. Like, I know that can't work without like a ton of money and I don't have that money to put into it. So I'm able to kind of like go, no, that idea is not good. But then, you know, bringing Jenny in just, that was obvious. And, well, um, you know, like, stuff I feel like, like that. I've, oh, sorry. No, you're fine. I feel like I've told you this in maybe several Instagram posts. Cause it comes over me as an organizer a lot, but it does like the structure of the podcast seems like, um, very much grounded in the principles of community organizing and that you have this like belief or belief system um, that is, you know, what works essentially. And then you've just been talking about it and that people, people will hear it. And if they like what they hear and believe what they hear and find it useful, they stay. And then you start to build this group of people. And I think what's cool is in the time that I've sort of been watching, I see, um, like leaders. So there's a whole, there's a whole model of community organizing. This is really nerdy. So sorry. Um, but it's called the snowflake model and it sort of builds out from a center leader. And then they build out these additional leaders and those people go tell other people and it builds the snowflake of people that are more powerful, quote unquote, than, um, just any individual sort of in a room by themselves. And I think that the I've seen that happen with the podcast. Like there are now ambassadors or leaders or whatever nodes of people that are going to go out and talk about how to bump and nudge and how to um, think about timing and amount in ways that before they were at the pod, met the podcast, they would not have done that. Um, and I think that like, that is how, that is what political organizers hope for and almost can never find. But I think the difference between sort of a political message and what you have to offer is that it is concrete improvement in people's lives if they choose to apply it. And mm -hmm. so like, it makes sense that it continues to exponentially uh, grow. Am I the center of the snowflake? Unfortunately, yes. Unfortunately, yes. Yeah. Hey, listen, you can't, you can't pick who it ends up being. I know it's upsetting that it's me, but again, fuck. <laughs> uh, no that's I, not a question that martin luther king would ask just for the record 
I was just trying to build a picture of what you were saying because I think you swallowed the word snowflake when you first started it. So I was trying to make sure people understood. And then I did it in a way that was self-effacing because, you know, I don't know. That's just how my it's humor on brand. Works. Yeah, yeah, it's on brand, right? So, um, but no, I actually had three. It's funny, as you were finishing, I had three questions and I was like, do I go with the funny one? Oh, it's towards the end. I'll keep it light. Or, and, and then I thought, or do I go with the more serious one? I'm like, oh, she might run out of time. And then I defaulted to stupid. Uh, but I, <laughs> I, I really, it, it's amazing to hear you explain that because I've been learning this as I'm doing it. I had no right. idea about any of this. Like, it's very, like, I'm not lying to you. The first month I made this podcast, 1,300 times it was downloaded. So I don't know what that means. There were only four episodes. I mean, rough math, there's probably like 400 people listening, maybe. And uh, I mean, last month, I think there were like 350,000 downloads. Um, so it's, um, I've had to grow along with it. And trust me, if I don't keep figuring it out and staying flexible the way I am, this thing would have died a thousand times already. Like, right. like, I know it seems like you just build this thing and it grows exponentially on its own, but it's not. It's like every time I look up, this is an entity that is different than the entity it was three months prior. And so I have to keep, like, there was a time where I had to be online answering people's questions. And now people answered their questions for me. And so I can move my my focus to a different thing. There's a time when I had to take a lot of phone calls from people because I couldn't reach them with the podcast yet. So I would reach them personally and then they would go out and tell their people. It's simple to just say it's word of mouth because it is. The podcast grows completely through word of mouth. But I have I, I was gonna say something that sounds so douchey, but like like you have to have like your finger on the pulse of what's happening and you have to keep adjusting. And if you do it wrong, you have to be able to throw your hands up and say, Oh, oh they don't care. Like we started animating the Defining Diabetes series for YouTube, and we got like three or four of them up, and I'm like, uh-oh, people don't care about this. And I contacted the animator. I was like, stop. Like, stop. She's like, you don't want to finish? And I'm like, no, no, stop. It's over. It didn't work. <laughs> like, right? Yeah. Like, I'm going to try a different way to do it again. I, we have the content. I'll try it a different way. I'm like, but I want you to shift and start taking 30-second clips out of episodes and making them into animations, and we'll try them on different social media platforms instead. And if that doesn't work, I will abandon that in three seconds. And that's where companies are screwed because they make a decision. It's people's jobs. Nobody wants to say the thing that they had an idea about was bad. So they will follow a bad idea right to their death. And I'm just like, no, no, that's not working. Stop. We got to pivot. And well, know. and what you're describing is like also what politicians have to do and are so bad at, but like the ability to focus on what actually matters and what actually impacts lives like is what sorry to like take it to no, politics please. but like that's what a good politician can do and can stop you know a, a, a organization of hundreds of people and say we we're doing this we're shifting message because like the, the you're wrong about what actually matters and what's having impact um and so to that end i think that as i it's funny that you bring up the animations because i saw those i was like this feels odd um, I don't know what Scott is doing with these exactly. And so it's funny then that that plan, it seems like it's shifting or changing and it doesn't 
doesn't surprise me that you are capable of recognizing that and then moving back to like what is making traction because that is something that you have to be able to do in a political uh, in any sort of movement. Like I keep making it political. No, but it's, it's a really great example of that people don't really know what they want. And that's where leadership comes in. So people think they want the animations. They, they like the idea of it. I will show right. this to my kid, and my kid will understand pre-bolusing now because of this. And even while they were saying it, I was like, that's not right. But then enough <laughs> people said it. I was like, all right, well, let's give them what they want. And so like, I gave it to them. I was like, oh, you don't want this. You think you want this. And, right. I, and I was like, oh, that's interesting. So now you know, we, it's set up. And it's easy to do. So I'm like, well, let's just make little clips of it and we'll see if we can make it work on TikTok or Instagram, like stories or stuff like that. And if it works, great. And if it doesn't, then to me, that's what leadership is. Leadership is being able to say, you know, A, I know what it it sounds. Trust me, if you're listening, you're going to think it sounds horrible, but I probably have a better idea of what you need around diabetes than you do at this point. And it's leadership and yeah. it's parenting. You want to date the bad boyfriend, but I can tell you right now, he, it's not going to work you, out. Well. You want the guy who has goo at the bottom of the Grand Canyon <laughs> and is like, here, this is the stuff I, I eat when I'm riding my bicycle and it will bring your blood sugar up. Yeah, no. The only man who brought water <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> exactly. All right. We had a great time, didn't we? Yes. Yes, we did. Can I call this episode if it pleases the court? <laughs> sure. Can I? Because I don't know what else to call it right now. <laughs> How about uh, Danielle? Danielle curses a lot. It, Doug. Maybe I'll just call it Doug. No one will even get that. That was an hour and a half ago. Right now, people listening are like, what is she talking about? So is it, all right, real quick. Is it, it's Kamala? Kamala. Kamala. I keep saying it wrong. Kamala Harris. Her husband's name is Doug. If you didn't hear that an hour and a half ago, you weren't paying attention. If you've insulted me, and that's the end of this. All right, go learn how to be a lawyer. What kind of lawyer are you going to be? Okay. Are you going to defend people or throw them in jail? I'm obviously going to defend people. Good for you. Very nice. All right, you were terrific. You'll be back on one day. All right, you I let me know. It. All right, take care. All right, bye, Scott. Bye. I want to thank Danielle for coming on the show. I want to thank Omnipod for sponsoring the show. I want to thank the Contour Next One Blood Glucose Meter for sponsoring the show. For sponsoring the show. I don't know what happened just there. Omnipod.com forward slash juice box. Go find out about the Omnipod 5 or the Omnipod Dash, whichever strikes your fancy. And of course, at contournext.com forward slash juice box you can get my daughter's blood glucose meter. It's terrific. It just is. Contournext.com forward slash juice box. If you're into helping people, especially people with type 1 diabetes, I'd like to ask you to go to t1dexchange.org forward slash juice box. When you get there, fill out the survey completely. And you've helped somebody. All you need to be is a U.S. resident who has type 1 diabetes or is the caregiver of someone with type 1. T1DExchange.org forward slash juice box. Join the registry. Complete the survey. Help someone with type 1 diabetes. Help yourself, perhaps. And support the Juice Box podcast. You will do all of this in the fewer than 10 minutes that it will take 
to go to that link and complete the survey. The survey is very simple. You'll know all the answers to all the questions. It is also HIPAA compliant and completely anonymous. t1dexchange.org forward slash juicebox. There are links in the show notes of your podcast player and links at juiceboxpodcast.com to all of the sponsors and to T1D Exchange. When you take the time to click on my links or to type them in a browser, you're telling the sponsors that you came from the Juicebox podcast, and that is a wonderful way to support the show. Are you looking for a vibrant and intelligent community around diabetes? Look no farther than the Facebook page, the private Facebook page for the Juicebox podcast. It's called Juicebox Podcast Type 1 Diabetes. The group has over 28,000 members, and those members are responsible for between 70 and 110 new posts every day on the Facebook page. Every conceivable conversation around diabetes is happening at Juicebox Podcast Type 1 Diabetes on Facebook. You're going to see great questions, thoughtful answers, and supportive people. No matter if you're an adult living with type 1 diabetes or the caregiver of someone with type 1, this group is for you. Doesn't matter if you eat low carb or high carb or somewhere in between. Your questions and thoughts are welcome on our Facebook page. I hope you check it out. Last little bit, if you're looking for the Diabetes Pro Tip series or the Defining Diabetes series or any of the other multitude of series that exist within the podcast, you can find them in a number of ways. They are at juiceboxpodcast.com. They are at diabetesprotip.com. And if you belong to the private Facebook group, you can find them listed in the featured tab. Now, if you're enjoying the podcast, please consider sharing it with someone else. That helps the podcast grow more than anything. Word of mouth is definitely how the show has become what it is. If you have already shared it with everybody you can think of, and you've bought an Omnipod or a Dexcom or supported one of the other sponsors, you've done the T1D Exchange survey, and now you're looking for another way to give back to the podcast, super simple. A five-star rating and a thoughtful review in whichever audio app you listen in would be amazing. Thank you so much for listening. I'll be back very soon with another episode of the Juicebox Podcast.